Greetings, dear <laughs> listeners. <laughs> what what was that? I'm just trying to keep you off your game, you know. Uh, <laughs> greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg. This is the host of the Remnant Podcast. We literally have no idea when this will air because there is a titanic, epic legal struggle between my new upstart media company and um, the law offices of Wolf, Ram, and Hart, uh, which represent National Review. No, just kidding. But we are we are waiting for uh, some some legal stuff and for some mechanical stuff to happen. And so we wanted to get a show in the can, but it can't really be on the news because we don't know when this is going to air. We have the George Will conversation that's going to go up before this one anyway. But one of the reasons why we want to get stuff in the can is because Jack Butler. Have we decided that you're the producer? Is that the title that you want for this thing? Or... I accept that title. Okay. I mean, it was between that and Piss Boy, and we just went with the producer. So, right. um, and uh, and uh, Jack is going to Italy for like two weeks. Yep. Um, this is some sort of uh, what was the movie with Tom Hanks? The terrible uh, anti-Catholic book. Uh, oh, a Da Vinci Code. Yeah. Is this some sort of Da Vinci Code thing? Yeah, I'm training a group of uh, young high, uh, high students from my alma mater to be members of um, Opus Dei. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, Paul Paul Bettany needs some reinforcements. Okay. We're going to give them. Um, and we are training up our, our lovely and talented intern, Audrey Falberg, who is uh, in Jack's normal spot. Uh, wave hello. That was her waving. She'll make an uh, audio appearance on a future podcast. It's one of our uh, recurring rituals here. Um, and the other so, ones we're not allowed to talk about in public. That's right. Um, and also, according to the health code, there's some we just can't reveal. It's <laughs> steep fine. So um, we decided we were going to do some sort of Q&A type deal where you, our dear listeners, get to ask all sorts of questions. Jack, you can attest that according to the Coopers and Libran rules of accounting on here that I have not seen any of these questions beforehand? Let the record reflect that he has not seen the questions. Okay. And um, since people have heard the George Will thing by the time we do this, I was just wondering before we get to that, before we get to the questions, because I fear that the questions will take us to dark and strange places. <laughs> As they do. Um, what did you think of the George Will thing? You actually interviewed George for the AI podcast. Yes, for Banter, which will be – that will also be available by the time people hear this Uh I think I, I, George Will, he is not quite as uh, blunt and terse and pre-programmed as uh, Tyler Mecca Tyler Cohen, uh-huh. uh, but he is admirably concise in his answers and admirably forthright in his principles. And both, I think, both your interview with him and mine reflected that. Yeah, I had a bit of a. For those of you who didn't see it um, or did see it. Or may see it. Uh, I did an interview of him for uh, book notes on C-SPAN, and that's what it's called, right? Book notes? book TV, book TV. Um, and uh, I don't know I had like twenty three prepared questions, and I probably got through them in the first thirty two minutes of the show. <laughs> <laughs> it's like having to wing it. So there are a couple times, and they don't do any editing at C-SPAN or anything like that. So like every second where you're like. Uh, having a brain fart moment is just being blasted out to the world and they're not going to pull it out or anything like that. So it was a little annoying. But um, So you're saying C-SPAN blasts farts out into the world? That's, that's, that's pretty much what I'm saying. Okay. Yeah.
Uh, all right, let's get this thing started. Okay, so there the questions conveniently congealed into uh, five categories. I think it's five. If I'm wrong, then it'll be kind of amusing, so I won't correct myself. Personal questions, pet questions, always pet questions. Always, always. Political questions, pop culture questions, and one question that I, I put in the miscellaneous category. So which do you want to start with? I'll take pet questions for 400, Jack. Okay. Um, how do you find such great spaces in a metropolitan area to bring your dogs on amazing adventures as advertised on your Twitter? No need to dole out specific places, just the investigative theory behind uncovering great spots that aren't full of other people. Our border collie slash blue healer needs all the space we can get. Please help. He's already cracked our bank account from boredom. Okay. So, first of all, uh, there's a great website called bringfido.com that we don't use for the D.C. area because we know the places to take in the D.C. area. But when you're traveling or if, 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 if you want to look up places in your area, you might check it out. They list all these dog parks. They tell you which ones have leash rules and which ones don't. Um, in the case of D.C., people don't seem to realize that there's an enormous amount of natural places around D.C. We don't usually go to Rock Creek Park, but Rock Creek Park is huge. And Rock Creek Park is, like, really interesting to me because I grew up with Central Park. And the way they made Central Park is that Olmsted, this great architect, um, urban designer, uh, step it was like one of these underpants gnome kind of things. It was like step one, clear out the Irish and the blacks, <laughs> and step two, make a big park, right? And so that park is not natural. Central Park, it is that is a manicured landscape design thing. They had to get rid of the slums that were there. Uh, Rock Creek Park, they just basically said, "Thou shalt not build a city here," and so it's actually the original kind of wilderness. That was there when the city was founded. And there's a lot of other places like that. Archibald Glover Trail, all sorts of places where I take the dogs. There are these trails that ring around D.C. My wife takes some, you know, everyone thinks that I'm the big dog walker in part because I cheat by posting the the workday, midday walks from our dog walker. And people don't seem to realize that they're from Kirsten, not from me. But um, but my wife takes the dogs down along the Potomac for a couple hours uh, every day. I don't think, I think most cities, if you look around, there are a lot more places to go to if you're willing to drive 10 or 15 minutes, um, depending on where you live. But uh, those are some of the places we go. Also, D.C. has a bunch of parks. Battery Kimball Park in D.C. is probably one of the best dog parks in America, even though the people who live around there, um, including um, our friend Tucker Carlson, who lives around there now, he moved out of my neighborhood. Hey, careful, um, don't dox him. Yeah, well, look, I mean, they already did. Oh, so right. People yeah. know where he is. I thought about that. <laughs> I think Tucker's probably fine with people bringing dogs there because he's a crazy dog guy and his brother brings his dogs there all the time. And um, He still hasn't kidnapped Pippa, though. Yeah, and Tucker really wants Pippa, which you always have to keep him at like 10 feet away from Pippa at all times. <laughs> but there are, the National Park Service sometimes will come and try to give people fines and tickets. Uh, but there's a there's a wonderful spo- Hayekian spontaneous order to it that the second the the, the park police show up, Everyone yells, cops! And everyone, <laughs> everyone puts their dogs on leashes. Oh, so, really? Yeah. That's so, hilarious. That. Uh, yeah, a lot of those places you're describing, the, the like where the natural wilderness is still the original natural wilderness, they have um, uh, clear evidence of their role in the Civil War. Because a lot like Battery Kemble was literally like that was an artillery post. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and D.C. was under constant threat during the Civil War because it was technically 
in the South. Yeah, um, it was in the South. I, I used to have this argument with people all the time. Baltimore's in the South. Baltimore's below the Mason-Dixon line. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, Battery Kimball is part of the Fort Circle Parks or something, something like that. And there are a bunch of battery or fort parks around inside of D.C. So yeah. There are plenty of places. You just have to sort of scope them out, and you have to be pretty good about training your dogs about how to be off leash. You also got to be a little cognizant of which streams around here get way too much nasty runoff from like sewer systems because there are some streams that are bad and you do not want your dogs in them. And every now and then we'll find some place where some local hippie lets their kids swim in those things and it's just it's like you know it's like they're they're panning for ear infections or something. I mean, it's really gross. But anyway, okay. Is that a, is that a podcast uh, title, Panning for Ear Infections? It's a contender. Um, we'll see if we come up with anything better. Uh, all right, political questions for 400, Jack. Okay. Um, let's see, which one? Uh, who? Okay, I'll just deal with the first one I've listed here. Who has been the most important legislator of the last century? I was, I was going to go ahead and say, my answer to this was Anthony Kennedy. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's not bad, actually. Yeah, but do you have uh... one? It's the problem is legislation, legislating, like actually legislating, is kind of faded in importance. Yeah, Congress has atrophied. But the last hundred years is a long time. That's right? true. And so since nineteen nineteen, um, yeah, uh, I'm gonna have to plead guilty and say I probably don't know the answer to this, and like in terms of who the contenders would be, because there were all of the. I mean, like you can make the case that Lyndon Johnson. Yeah, I was gonna. Th- I was gonna mention him. Possibly. He was sort of master of the Senate and all that stuff, um, and the Senate locker room. <laughs> yeah, um, and I hate to say it, Ted Kennedy was responsible for a lot of stuff. Yeah, uh, uh, I mean, the question was the most important. Yes. Yeah. So important doesn't necessarily mean good, right? Right. Um, then says that Hitler was a great man, but he was not a great person. Um, yeah, like a, a someone who drove history. Right. Time Magazine Person of the Year before it became incandescently stupid. Yes. Um, before uh, everyone in this room became Time Magazine Person of the Year. That's true. 2006, it was and you. Was Audrey alive then? <laughs> yes, she <laughs> um, was. Okay. Um, all right, so I don't have a great answer. I'm sure... Um, this is one of these things that, like, over the next two days, I'll slap myself on the forehead a lot and say, oh, I should have said someone, you know, X or Y, but I don't know who it is. Moynihan, you know, I liked a lot, but he didn't have a lot of great legislation to his name as far as I can remember. Um, so since you mentioned Moynihan, uh, there's another political question uh, about him. How did New York go from electing senators like Moynihan and James Buckley mm-hmm. to a senator like Gillibrand? Um Okay, so, and Hillary. Yeah, so there are a couple answers there. One, um, you know, there's that old line about Jews that they live like Episcopalians and vote like Puerto Ricans. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, something similar goes on with New York City politics. Moynihan, I actually, I think I briefly asked George Will about this because George was very close friends with Moynihan and a huge fan of Moynihan. But Moynihan as a senator was not great. Um, he basically made a deal where, particularly as his career, you know, evolved, where the deal was he could write really great things, really great neoconservative tracts about iatrogenic government. <laughs> Do you know what iatrogenic government is? Uh, iatrogenic means? I, I, I don't. I, okay. I'm ashamed to say. Uh, I believe iatrogenesis 
um, or atrogenic is a medical intervention that makes the patient worse. Ah, uh, okay. That's, um, a, that's a that's a Buckley esque. It is formulation. And um, but he voted kind of party line left, um, uh, or not maybe not left, but certainly liberal. Um, Was he to the left of Scoop Jackson on things? Yes. Okay. Yes. Although, you know, Scoop Jackson was a pretty right-wing Democrat. That was back when, like, labor unions were um, – some of them, at least, were proudly anti-communist. Yeah. And that's why people like my old boss, Ben Wattenberg, and Richard Pearl, and a lot of those guys, they started their transformation into neoconservatives by following behind Scoop Jackson. Um um, Scoop Jackson is one of those figures that most people have never heard of, um, but whose influence in sort of intellectual realm was actually kind of huge. Um, the thing about Gillibrand in particular is she's what social scientists call a liar. <laughs> and <laughs> is that a technical term? It is a technical term. She Remember, she got elected as playing like the moderate um, sort of, uh, you know, pro-gun pro-rural New York Democrat. Right, elected to the House. To the House. And um, since then, she's just been having a fire sale. She's become, of all of her previous alleged principles, as she's become more woke. And, um, you know, she said this week, what did she say this week? Um, that, oh, that, that people who are opposed to abortion are like racists and need to be, you know, pelted from the public square and whatnot. Um, well, see ya. Bye. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I think she's, uh, but you know, New York. Yeah, the the interesting question is people like Buckley. How did he get elected? And I, I don't have a great answer for that. Yeah, that was probably an idiosyncratic circumstance. Uh, but uh, one thing I'll say about Jill Brand, I, I am, I think our presidential nomination process is just terrible. Like this is not. I don't think this is really a partisan point. It's just a mess. And it, it attracts all these people to run, and they they see no downside because at the very least they get attention. Right. But I think that uh, Gillibrand may be bringing a possible downside to it of someone who actually comes out of the whole thing uh, looking worse than before their campaign started. I think that she may be approaching that position. I think that's probably right. Um, I think de Blasio is in trouble, in danger of that as well. De Blasio... Uh, Pod was talking about this on his niche podcast the other day. That's John. I'm sorry, NPR. That's John Podoritz, Jonah's close friend. Yes, uh, host of the commentary podcast and very fine niche product. An excellent niche product, and my colleague on the Glop podcast, where um, he spends most of the time talking. And uh, <laughs> but I think it was Pod who was saying, and I call him Pod, as do many people. Um, Pod that, people that. In the latest CNN or Gallup, someone had a poll of the Democratic field, and de Blasio literally, not only did he get 0% in the in the favor, in the ranking, no respondent, not a single human said <laughs> they were in favor of him. It's just wow. so, so like, because in polling, you can have zero and then you can have pure zero, right? Right. Um, absolute zero. Absolute zero. And so, <laughs> but no, I think, I think you're pro, you might be right. The problem is, is we've never seen a field this big. And, you know, the sociology among Democrats versus Republicans in primary stuff, and I, I'm not going to redo my whole parties are bad, parties are too weak stuff. I did it with George Will last week. Um, I did it in the first new G-file. Um, but 
the sociology of the two parties is very different. And, you know, political consultants will tell you the, the GOP's fringe candidates, you know, the why the hell they why the hell are they running candidates? They're typically running for talk radio gigs, for cable, for Fox News contributor gigs, for selling books, that kind of stuff. Um, uh, you know, the the Herman Cain types, the Tom Tam Credo types, um, Gary Bauer. You know, don't badmouth Jim Gilmore. I know you were big on Jim Gilmore back in 2015, 2016. I still have Gilmentum. Gilmentum. Um, uh, and some, you know, just want to remind you, sort of like Abe Vigoda, that they're still alive, right? Who so is that, now dead? Is Abe Vigoda, well, now who's being naive? <laughs> um, uh, and that would be like George Pataki. No offense to Robert Doerr, who worked for him for a while, but I'm not a huge fan. I'll just leave it there. Uh, um, but meanwhile, the Democrats who run, they're running for gigs in a future Democratic administration. They're running for, you know, somewhat sometimes to raise money from different kitties that they're not allowed to raise, given what the office they're currently in. But they are running for viability and profile within the infrastructure of the Democratic Party and the next Democratic administration. The Republicans who do those kinds of races typically don't. They're typically running um, for their own you know, uh, I don't want to say grift because some of them are perfectly fine people, but they're running for their their own profile or their, or as an issue to raise awareness about some issue. Right. I think of all the 2016 Republican field, the only one who took a job in the Trump administration was – oh, no, two. Rick Perry, Secretary of Energy, and um, Ben Carson for HUD. I can't think of any others. Oh, there were others. Um, who else? Herman Cain. No, he doesn't actually. Oh, he doesn't have one, right? He yeah. wanted one, right? Um, but that was—he was a 2012. Well, it doesn't. I mean, oh, that's same, right. Same no, point. So who else? Um, I can't think of anyone else. Doesn't Carly Fiorina have a job now? I don't think it's in the Trump administration. Hmm. Um, but it would be—it'd it, be slightly easier because <laughs> just compare that. Excuse our, me. <laughs> nice. <laughs> compare our struggle here to um, the 2008 Democratic race. Biden ends up VP. Hillary. Ends up Secretary of State. Uh, Bill, whatever his name, the New Mexico guy. He, Bill he, Richardson? He ends up something, right? Yeah. Um, Bill Richardson is one of these guys who has escaped scrutiny in ways that is fascinating. Yeah, he sneaks up on you. Oh, there he is right now. <laughs> no, no. Like, like every time, like back in the, the early Obama years, late Bush years, if you ever went to New Mexico and you talked to a sort of conservative Republican types there, just... the all three of them. No, there are, there are a bunch of them. They're just outvoted. Um, the stories you would hear about Bill Richardson were of a par with like the stories you used to hear about Bill Clinton and in Little Rock. I mean, just weird, creepy, and they could all. Uh, let me stipulate: could all be pure rumor, no, utterly baseless. I don't know. Could be uh, effluvia from the Roswell incident as well. It could be, but there were lots and lots of stories about like people critics being pulled over in the middle of the road in the middle of the night and bizarrely beaten up for no apparent reason i mean like crazy stuff you would hear and again it could all be fake but um it just he's one of these guys who just i think he's always been sketchier than people recognize i don't know how we got on this okay let's move on um what next pop uh, culture questions sorry pop culture questions. pop culture for 200 what did you think of the deadwood movie i liked the deadwood movie for the first half hour of the Deadwood movie, I was like, mm, I'm not sure if I like the Deadwood movie because it had this sort of 
forced feel of callbacks to the series to that kind of felt like a you know like the final episode of mash or something (laughs) and but they ended up making it work and it just made me angry that that they really just should have never ever canceled the series to begin with what's interesting um is and i've been thinking about writing something about this on a lark, I rewatched the first season of NYPD Blue a couple months ago, and I'm figuring I would just watch that. I wanted to see – I was going to write something about it, and I've stuck with it, and I'm now in season 10. And Wow. Uh, How many seasons are there? 12. It was, until Grey's Anatomy, the longest-running uh, TV show on ABC or on TV – longest-running drama. Oh. Yeah. Um, Grey's Anatomy, which – now has a life of its own. It's proceeding without anyone really doing any. It just sort of happens. I mean, it's in danger of basically becoming cocoon. Right. right. You know, yeah. when these, these old people keep sleeping with each other. Yeah. <laughs> um, but well, they weren't that there. You're 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 approaching the Wilford Brimley mark yourself. No, I know, but you're... like Wilford Brimley was supposed to be old. Right? Okay. That's yeah. The... Well, like uh, Max von Sydow was 44 in The Exorcist. Yeah, so. he's been he was professionally old for more than half of his life. He needed more makeup in that movie than Reagan did. Um, uh, what were we talking about? Oh, so so David Milch, who was one of the creators of NYPD Blue, um, and also the creator of of Deadwood. It's really interesting to see the um, first of all how many of the actors from NYPD Blue were also in Deadwood. Mm-hmm. Um. He clearly had some favorites that he just brought over. Um, uh, but also some of the themes of Deadwood are also the themes in the early NYPD Blue stuff about lots of stuff. David Milch, David Milch's alcoholism was clearly a major source of artistic tension for him. <laughs> and it runs through both Deadwood and through NYPD Blue in major ways. Uh, Milch clearly hates doctors hates them. I don't know why. I don't know what his personal thing is. I mean, the doctor in Deadwood is great, but but he hates medicine. Oh, and okay. uh, and he hates the lies that doctors tell you and how and he clearly hates hospitals. And um so I like the Deadwood movie. I wish it was really just what they really should have done is made it at minimum like a Chernobyl four-part, five-part miniseries if they weren't going to make it a whole series to really wrap it up because at times it did feel a little rushed, not as rushed as the end of, uh, as the episode, the, well, the final season of game of Thrones, but still felt rushed. Yeah. Um, did you watch, you've watched Chernobyl? I have, I've still haven't seen the final episode, but I've watched Chernobyl and this, the penultimate episode, I think of Chernobyl. I had, it was the first time I've had to fast forward through uncomfortable scenes in like 30 years. Wow, really? Well, there's a spoiler, mild spoiler for people. For a historical event that yeah, but happened there, 30 or 5 years ago, or 31. There's a section of the fourth, I think, episode where this team from the Red Army has to go around in the neighboring towns oh, and then, shoot all the dogs and cats. Yeah. And I, I know some people... We'll be surprised by this. I have a hard time watching people shoot dogs. And, um, and I was like, I get it. I get it. I'll miss the dialogue. And I just got to fast forward it to that. So the, there, that, that show is going to have a very low score on uh, do they shoot the dog.com. That's right. Right. Does the dog die? Does the dog die? Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Does the dog die? I cite I visited more than once, I will tell you. <laughs> um, uh, 
what I like about Chernobyl is the um, the, the show, the show, yeah. not the incident. <laughs> Do you know what Chernobyl means in uh... Uh, Wormwood from Revelation? That's right. Although uh, you're you're a biblical guy. Uh, no, I'm Catholic. I only know the parts of the Bible the priest says at mass. Okay, that's fair. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, I'd said I slipped up on Twitter and said something about the Book of Revelations, and. I don't mind being corrected, but a bizarrely large number of people were like, it's Book of Revelation. There's just one revelation. Is this like a contentious thing? Is this something that like hmm. different people feel very strong? It seemed like people felt very strongly that it should be singular and it wasn't just like a typo correction. Yeah. So this is you're saying this is your two Corinthians moment, huh? I guess. Um, so I get I think. I guess I understand why people would get mad at you because I, I have been to Patmos, to the cave where John received the revelation. And I think people would get mad at you because I think the conceit of the of that book is that it all happened basically at once. Uh-huh. And so John is just there. Angel shows up, tells him to write down everything, and just shows him everything, uh-huh. just furiously scribbling, uh, trying to keep up with this fantastic – Literally, in the old sense of the word, fantastic imagery. And it all, so it's like, it's not meant to be a, a, a collection of, like, he leaves the cave, has lunch, comes back, uh-huh. oh, okay. leaves, comes, it's not, I think it's all, like, all concurrent, all contemporaneous. But my point is, it felt like like somebody, that there are people who say revelations and they're the bad people. Oh, I, I mean, that would be news to me. I, I've heard people, I, I, I've had Catholic friends who have casually or absentmindedly said revelations, and I did not start an inquisition on uh-huh. them. So maybe, but that maybe that's maybe I'm the heretic too. That's possible. Well, you're you're only as as faithful as your priest allows you to be. Right. Exactly. Because so. I, I can't read either. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next. Uh, what category? Well, do you want to do you want the soul miscellaneous question? Yes, yeah, soul miscellaneous. And this is not miscellaneous about Thomas Soul, right? This is no, this no, S O L E. This is a solitary miscellaneous question, right? Okay. Um, are speaking of Catholicism, are papal ninjas real? Well, every time I bring up papal ninjas, people like Ross Douthat. Every time I say we should get papal ninjas, um, Ross Douthat says, or he said it a couple times. Other people have to, you know. Now who's being naive? You know what makes you think we don't have them already? And blah 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 blah. Uh huh. Um, I just kind of feel like if if the Vatican actually had papal ninjas, more people would be inexplicably dying. Right. Um. And uh, uh so I, th- I I I I'm inclined to think that they do not currently exist, but they they definitely should. You know, as someone who, you know rejects the fetishization of the Westphalian nation state that some of our friends on the right have, have now glorifying. Um, you are now free to name names if you want. You're you're liberated. Yeah, well, I mean, everyone, I mean, like, uh, until I see Rich's book, you know, I have no first order complaints about Rich, Rich Lowry's stuff compared to, like, some of the other silliness that's out there. Uh, yeah, I look forward to smelling Rich's book because I won't be able to read it. That's right. So well, just... as as told to by your priest. Right. You can find out what it says. <laughs> um, no, but I, I, you know, Rich is a very careful guy, and he makes perfectly fine points about nationalism. I have no, you know, um, my my disagreements with him are, are well known. But they're, you know, the sort of Hazoni thing where you're going to squeeze the entire warp and woof of Western the Western philosophical, you know, tradition through a 
this sort of narrow biblical under, understanding of biblical borders or whatever the hell that is, I have my problems with. But anyway, my only point is, is that the, the moral authority of the Vatican is as good as a lot of countries. And if they want to do nation building or peacekeeping stuff and send out some, you know, let's bring back the Knights Templar. Let's bring back, you know, uh, uh, the papal armies to a certain extent. I'm okay with it. Okay. Good to know. Um, you haven't asked, you haven't selected any personal questions from yet. Okay, personal for a thousand, Jack. Oh, for a thousand. Um, you often refer to yourself as a pseudo intellectual demi Jew. Care to explain what that means exactly? Um, Should we break it down part by part? Let me get a beer. Uh, so a beer question. Uh, first of all, it's a joke, right? Um, it's self deprecation. Uh, what? I've never heard of that. <laughs> um, <coughs> um, I think the only, I mean, I think people understand what pseudo-intellectual means, which I'm just trying to not be as highfalutin as it, I sometimes sound and sort of make fun of myself. And the demi-Jew part is that my mom wasn't Jewish, is not Jewish. My dad was. And so for an enormous number of people who think this is a much more interesting topic than I do, uh, that means I am not Jewish because Judaism passes on the mat- matrilinear line and all these other things. Fine. I totally understand that. I understand that if I wanted to become a, a citizen in Israel, there'd be extra paperwork or something. Uh, I'm not interested in doing that. I was raised Jewish. I went to Road of Sholem Day School in Man- on the Upper West Side of Manhattan where Jewish families sent their kids to be raised Jewish. But not too Jewish. <laughs> um, was I would, that like a commercial or something? No, but people from New York know what I'm talking about. It was a reformed Judaism. It was a reformed Judaism, which for uh, some of my friends, particularly in Washington, who are Orthodox or conservative, not Orthodox, but well, conservative Jews, reformed Judaism doesn't count anyway. I mean, like, there are some Jews who see reformed Judaism as, you know... <laughs> Sort of like the way you would view Unitarianism. <laughs> um, you understand the vocabulary, but, you know, uh, I think that's a little unfair to Reform Judaism, and Reform Judaism takes itself a little more seriously than it used to. But anyway, the number of ways in which I am not a particularly great Jew. That's and, another podcast. Yes, is, is is vast and varied, and the I've never been kosher, you know, all of these other things. I'm terrible with money. Uh, I can't for the life of me figure out how to control the weather. Um, Uh, Yeah. Although you've been doing, someone's been doing a great job lately. uh, Well, someone has. Uh, (laughs) And um, uh, and so anyway, the the point is is that I I guess the original context that I started talking about that or using that line was because I'm culturally Jewish, right? I grew up in that Seinfeldian, you know, like literally that coffee shop is a few blocks from where I grew up. Um, and uh, uh, and so when I went to Goucher College, which was, you know, for li- I think listeners, regular listeners know this, I was rejected from every college I applied to because I was a, I had a good time in high school. And, <laughs> um, uh, and it was a very stressful thing. And, and then I got into Goucher in part because my freshman year was the first year that they admitted men, and you know, um, uh, which was interesting. And um, and so I usually talked about this. I usually when I first started using that phrase was 
how if I had gone to Cornell or University of Wisconsin or Emory, where like a lot of my friends went and a lot of people from my high school went and similar high schools went, I would have fallen in with people like me, sort of. I would have been just another pseudo intellectual demi Jew from the Upper West Side of Manhattan, right? Hmm. And but because it really rolls I, off the tongue, it really does. And then, but because I went to Goucher, where basically every guy there was kind of a civilization unto themselves, because you know <laughs> there was there was just my freshman year there were you know thirty odd men, and I do mean odd, men, <laughs> and over a thousand women, and so like. The friends I made my freshman, particularly my freshman year of college, were people I would not have been friend. Were the sort of guys I would not have befriended my freshman year at almost any normal school, right? Like my roommate was a hardcore deadhead mountain climber guy, um, and uh, one of my best friends my freshman year was a sort of a, a Italian playboy type guy from Rhode Island. With all sorts of interesting stories about the uh, legal ambiguities of some of his friends, um, <laughs> I don't want to get anybody in any trouble here. You know, and another guy was uh, this rich guy from Australia via Princeton, New Jersey. Another guy was a good old boy, and like you don't make friends with those kind of, people like me. You know, if I went to Syracuse, I would have probably joined some frat where there were a bunch of people who I knew from high school or whatever. But instead. Going to Goucher, like I was unique because I was the only person like me there, and um, and that's when I started calling myself the pseudo intellectual demi Jew from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. So, uh, a long and rambling explanation about the the etymology of that. Um, but those those are you just said some things about your past that I had not heard you say before. So that was a question worth asking, I think. Yeah, there are many things about my past you've not heard me say before. Yeah, but I've heard most of the ones you say in speeches before. Fair enough. All right, let's do politics for uh, 400. Uh, okay. Um, let's see here. Uh, oh, yeah, this we've been talking about this, so might as well. Has this illiberal traditionalist wing of the conservative movement always been present but quiet, or has something about Trump and the Democrats created this new illiberal fervor? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I, I just... um. I'm trying to figure out how best to engage my rant inhibitors <laughs> um, because I I He's have dialing not, them as we speak. I have not had the opportunity. I couldn't really unload about it with with George Will. That would have been inappropriate. And sir, this is a Wendy's. <laughs> <laughs> but this this um, David French Sora of Amari thing, which appears to be sort of petering out in this third week, if that's when we're recording this. Um, Who knows? It may have flared up again by the time this comes out. I find it, you know, how to put this? As you know, one of the things I love about conservatism is the arguments, right? I mean, that's one of the things I love about conservatism is that we we debate our dogma all of the time. People say that conservatives are closed-minded, and there's a big part of the theme of my very underrated second book, Tyranny Clichés, right? <laughs> Which was that the thing about conservatism is that the, the cliché that we're closed-minded and dogmatic both misunderstands conservatism and the nature of dogma. First of all, mo- there's a lot of really excellent dogma out there. And um, I am dogmatically opposed to rape. I am dogmatically opposed to murder and slavery. You know, and when people say to me, you know, oh, 
being dogmatic is bad or being certain is bad. And I was like, really? I can list a lot of things I'm certain about that I'm dogmatic about. And if you disagree with me, that means you're evil. <laughs> um, but Tough but fair. The other part is that conservatives um, – it's not that conservatives are more dogmatic than liberals. It's that conservatives recognize their dogma and they debate their dogma. Um, they talk about the trade-offs between competing philosophies. They, you know, whole, the whole point of fusionism was this whole thing about like trying to reconcile two different camps of of thought. We we recognize that there are trade-offs between, you know. Uh, liberty and order and freedom and virtue. And this is an ongoing argument, which gets us to this thing. The integralists or the post-liberals or whatever we're supposed to call them, the, the first things crowd and all this kind of stuff, this is not a new argument. It is That is one of the more frustrating things about all of this stuff is the degree to which so many of these people, um, and, and well, Grant, some of them are very smart and it's a diverse weird coalition of different philosophical schools. It's not easy to categorize as just they all believe X or they all believe Y. I'm sure there are profound disagreements between Tucker and Sorab and that Reno guy and and Hazoni and Deneen. And there's a lot more I can agree with in Deneen than I can with, with Hazoni or with Reno. Um, so let's stipulate it's all diverse. But the idea that these ideas are new is horse. You're going to have to bleep that. Um, the What's new is that conservatives think this is new, like this argument is new, that, that this post-consensus conservatism is a new friggin' idea when, first of all, what a lot of them are embracing are really, really old ideas, going back to like Demeist and these critics of the, you know, the, these, these counter-enlightenment critics of the 17th, you know, the late 1700s, early 1800s who were in favor of monarchy or integralism or whatever the hell that's supposed to be. Reno, in that stupid first things essay that he wrote a while back, you know, was talking about, you know, reconsidering the New Deal. And I'm like, well, that's, that's not a new idea. It's just <laughs> new that supposedly serious conservatives are treating it as a serious idea. Mm-hmm. And so this debate, uh, you know, I wrote the... Uh, forward to the new ISI version of what is conservatism, which has been reissued under different titles for a long, long time, and it's kind of, it's kind of like the liner notes to the fusionism debate on the right. And this debate has taken different forms in slightly different ways for sixty years. And the reason I say sixty years is because that's about how old American conservatism is. People, it's a very one of the weird ironies about American conservatism is that of all the ideological schools out there, it's basically the youngest, even though it celebrates old stuff. Um, progressivism has a much longer pedigree. It goes back to Auguste Comte and you know, or the or Rousseau, or whatever you want to call them. Uh, it 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 has, it certainly has its flourishing in the first part of the twentieth century. Environmentalism goes way back. Anarchism, you could say, goes back to Diogenes. It certainly is goes back further than modern American conservatism. Um, uh, classical liberalism is whether you want to take it back to ancient Greece or not. It certainly has its roots in in um, in England in the you know the late eighteenth in the eighteenth century. And, um, and meanwhile, modern American conservatism. There's this great line from Thomas Sowell where he says, you know that. Uh, 
the conservatives in the post-war era realized that you needed an you need an ideology to beat an ideology. And so the modern modern American conservatism was basically crafted in the post-war era that merged the sort of social conservatism and libertarianism, then called individualism, into this semi-coherent project. And the stuff that we're seeing today is just a resurfacing of it in, in, a, in a weird way. And when I say it's a weird way is that Let's just be honest. David French is is an absurd target for these people. It is a it is shameful. I actually think. I mean, I like Saurabh, and he's a nice guy, and I think his heart's in the right place. But it is shameful that he made this about David French. It is shameful that all of these, you know, drooling, you know, voluptuaries of power leapt into this stuff uh, to get Saurabh's back to make this about David French. David French has done, as an individual, probably more to defend traditional religion in this country than all of his critics combined, right? He makes no sense as a target. I make much more of a t- sense as a target. George Will makes much more sense as a target. Brett Stevens, you can go down and just like an enormous list. Charlie Cook, a bunch of us make more sense. If your real, uh, if your real problem is with pluralism, or if your real problem is with classical liberalism, if your real problem is with quote-unquote libertarianism... David French is as close as you're going to get as an ally. The problem with David French for these guys, and I think Jonathan Last nailed this, is that David French refuses to to turd polish Donald Trump. He refuses to say that Donald Trump is a good person or he refuses to say that he that supporting Donald Trump does not come at a cost for Christians of good conscience. And defending his behavior does not come at a cost. David is as open as anybody to respecting the transactional argument for for Donald Trump. But he will not say is that Donald Trump is a man of faith or that Donald Trump is a man of good character and all that kind of stuff. And it drives these people nuts. Some of them, it drives them nuts because it pings their consciences. And they're like, who is he? Why is he so much more righteous than me? Why doesn't he, you know, go along for the ride? And it drives some of them nuts because they just want to curry favor with Donald Trump or they want to use Donald Trump's popularity in some way to get, you know, to some sort of, you know, victory. And it's bizarre. I mean, if 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 you think you're going to persuade the country to give up on sort of classical liberal assumptions and uh, get behind some sort of post-liberal state that imposes virtue from Washington, and David French is too much of a squish to be part of this fight, who's going to, you know, I mean, like a bunch of, you know, you can fit the people who are on board on this around the conference table in the first things office. And and so I think it is, there's, there's this deep beating dishonesty in the way that they've singled out David French as... The, the symbol, first of all, the absolutely dishonest way they describe him, but this idea that somehow he represents the problem, he may represent a problem for these guys, but it is not the problem of accommodating, you know, progressivism that he represents. It's that it's, it's the problem of his refusal to accommodate Trumpism that he represents. This is the reason why they've singled him out. And I think it is 
despicable. So I didn't completely succeed in ramp in, in containing the ranting. Yeah, I, I I was watching them as you were talking, and and you you broke one of them. Yeah. Just, it, the the I had to move out of the way as the as the piece flew by me. I apologize. Um, you can have the sound effects later. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I have a as one of my friends uh, said on Twitter, this whole thing could have been resolved if David French had been president. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Would have been um, completely different. Yes. Lots of things would be different. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay, what category would you like to foray into next? Dealer's choice. Dealer's choice. Uh, oh, okay. I, I'll ask you this because I don't actually know much about your music tastes. <laughs> uh, favorite band you're embarrassed to admit you enjoy? Oh, my God. Um, I, I'll, I'll, I, I did this on Twitter not too long ago. Um I'm supposed to be embarrassed, but I'm not embarrassed. I love the monkeys. Oh yeah, that's. <laughs> um, I I'm uh yeah. I think being a fan of the monkeys was like it was cool at first, and then when they like became super popular, it became it was there. I think this happens in, in an episode of The Simpsons. People make fun of Marge for having a monkey's lunchbox. Possible. And Mar- Lisa. No, Marge. Yeah, when she was a kid in the, in the oh okay in the okay kid okay. universe of the show. Okay, yeah. So like in the probably just after they they peaked and before they started to get weird, it was like the, this weird hipster distaste of them. But now I think that they're respectable again. I mean, I I, I know on political beats, political beats did a whole episode on the monkeys. Did they really? Uh huh. They must have spent a given that those podcasts run like three hours. <laughs> they must have spent a good amount of time on their Vietnam anthem, "Last Train to Clarksville." <laughs> Yeah, probably. Um, yeah, monkeys. Monkeys are. At, at one point, my, my my father related to me this anecdote, which I'm not sure if it's true, but I it sounds true, so I'm gonna choose to believe it's true. That the monkeys met the Beatles once, and the monkeys were like, "Oh, we love your we love your music. We want to be like you guys." And the Beatles were like, "Why? We're, your music's great. Just just stick with what you're doing." And then they ignored that advice and made Head, which has some interesting stuff on it, but it's very unmonkey like. You know who uh, Mike Nesmith's mother was? I believe it was his mother. Maybe it was his father, but I'm pretty sure it's his mother. Inventor of Whiteout. Oh, right, yeah. Heir to the Whiteout fortune. <laughs> um, and I actually met Davy Jones more than once. Oh, really? Yeah. When my mom was a literary agent, he would, he was uh, talked about doing a book or something and it came by. He's a small person. Yes. I mean, just a physically small. Like, I, I think I actually accidentally put him in my pocket. Um, well, good thing he didn't stuff you into his locker. Um, that would be ugly. Um, so other music, I, I, I'll plead guilty. I am a, uh, I'm, I'm fairly omnivorous when it comes to music. In part because I don't care that much. Not a huge fan of hip hop. Uh, although some of the early stuff, my brother was really into. So I have some nostalgia for. Um, Biggie, is it, are you are you big into Biggie? Uh, no. This is early. Like like. Um, oh, like Run DMC. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Why? lines um uh and um love the kinks like some of the uh, some of the stones don't love some of the later stones um i was a uh i had was a big fan for a while like billy joel like almost the entire catalog of 1980s stuff and early only late do 80s, 70s. joel no <laughs> um uh uh, although, you know, I thought the guys who played the Catalina wine mixer were pretty good. Um, so uh, I listened to a lot of sort of whiny, um, 
acoustic and alternative stuff, mostly because I find it's useful background noise while I'm writing. <laughs> um, I've been on a big Johnny Cash kick for the last couple years, last five years or something like that. Um, well, the man has come around, so it seems like the right time. Um, and uh, never really liked classical music. I think it was partly Childhood Rebellion because it was on constantly in my home. And you were in operas. I was in operas. My dad loved the opera. He was passionate about the opera. Just, I loved being in opera. Right. So, like, I, I want listeners to know that that wasn't just a, a – I didn't misspeak there. You were in – I was in several uh, of the most important operas in America. Yeah, I was in, I, I was what they call a supernumerary, which is a fancy word for extra. Yeah. Um, in the Metropolitan Opera when so I was. So you, you weren't kid. a castrati then. I was not a castrati. No. Okay. Um, and that's my, good. My daughter Lucy can attest to that. And <laughs> um, um, and so I was in uh, Pavarotti's debut performance in America. Really? Yeah, I have an autograph from him. Um, I was in. So I was in Lohengrim, Peter Grimes. Le Désir de More, I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, um, I was in Faust, and did you take the deal? Uh, I was holding a candle, dude. Oh. Um, and uh, uh, that was awesome to do because the Metropolitan Opera House is a great place to be, like in second grade, running around like with Viking spears and stuff like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I never really, really liked opera too much. I mean, there are certain scenes or certain you know, bits I like, but anyway. Uh, okay. Do we have any other exciting question? You said there was something about national review you wanted to ask me. Uh, yeah, well, you can, we can judge whether you want this in or not. Uh, the question is, uh, how were you introduced to national review? Um, any fun Buckley stories? How did the corner get started? How has the institution changed? Uh, why were you there for so long, and why were you reluctant to leave? So this question was actually sent to us before you left. Yeah, that's why, because I did not know about these other questions. I want to be clear to our audience. I didn't, it wasn't some great giveaway. You had told me that you had a question about National Review that yeah. earlier. So, Yeah, I'm not going to get too deep in the weeds on that, um, particularly not until they uh, release this podcast, which is being held hostage. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but... Uh, um, uh, what to say about National Review? Um, well, we'll do the origin story for another time. Um, Corner was invented. I wrote a memo to Rich with 10 ideas for NRO. This was back when I was still the editor of it. and uh, Editor at large. That was later. Oh, okay. That was when you became large? Uh, no, I was large when they took me on. Um, <laughs> the uh, I've heard all large editor jokes. I know. I like know. whale jokes. Trust me. Um, and, uh, my last name is Butler. I know what it's like. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I wrote a, a memo with uh, like 10 or 12 ideas for, uh, NR, NRO and, uh, number nine, Rich always likes to point out was the idea of the corner, this group blog where we all sort of sound off, you know. And I had these theories about why it was a good idea. The the basic theory was was that, particularly at the time, remember this is this is before the Nakba, so conservatism was had a slightly different profile. But there was an unfair profile at the time that conservatives were close-minded, that they were unfunny, that they all marched in step, that they all agreed with each other, and they're dogmatic, all that stuff. And so I wanted something that sort of fought that by showing, not telling. And the idea was was to create the fantasy of what 
the water cooler conversation at National Review might be like. Sometimes serious about serious stuff that's going on, but sometimes getting into arguments about Star Trek or whatever and showing out, showing that there's actually a diversity of points of view. And I remember making the case that in Pulp Fiction, there's this great little scene where Uma Thurman is explaining that she was on a pilot, a TV pilot. Fox Force 5. Fox Force 5. And the idea behind the show was there would be uh, there was one chick who was like really good with knives, and there was another chick who was good with explosives, and there was another, you know, hot babe who was uh, into martial arts, or whatever. And part of the idea of the corner was is that we needed to have different kinds of conservatives represented there, so that they would be, you know, that would show the heterogeneity on, on the right. And that for a long time, that was my defense of Derbyshire. John Derbyshire, who was a brilliant guy, it was that, but he was sort of the cranky, paleoconish, um, increasingly racist, alas, um, writer. But it, but you know, Derb, a lot of these guys are crazy smart and talented people. I mean, the Washington Post book re- book reviewers said that his book, his novel, seeing seeing Calvin Coolidge in a dream, was like one of the greatest works of fiction in post war America or something. I mean, he's really, and he was a crazy mathematician, wrote a book about Fermat's theorem, but he got crankier and crankier and whatever. But my position, why I defended having him around for a long time was that, that anybody we replaced him with would be half as talented and probably even less collegial, though it all ended badly, alas. Um, and, uh, so Rich always likes to say, yeah, Jonah, it was your ninth suggestion. It was my wisdom that plucked, this one good idea out of this list that you gave me. And my argument is, is that, that first of all, neither of us can find this memo. Oh, that's a shame. So it could be that the wisdom of these other ideas was just so profound, Rich's feeble human mind could not grasp them, and he can only grasp right. the simplest one. Um, but neither of us can remember what the other ones you were. You cannot perceive the final form of <laughs> Of the attack. And I feel like, you know, I still technically have my old AOL account. I feel like if I really searched for it, I could probably find it. But um, but Rich instantly understood the idea of the corner, and so he deserves as much. I mean, it was my idea, but he deserves as much credit as anybody um, for its creation. And, look, I still like a lot of stuff at the corner, but Twitter was incredibly bad for the corner and for blogging in general, right? Blogging is a pale shadow of what it once was because it sucked away that sort of Instant, the instantaneity of conversation that used to take place in blogosphere now all happens in social media. And um, and so the corner became less conversational. Also, just people like me and Ramesh and Pod and Shannon Coffin and a bunch of people, we got busier. We had kids. There are all sorts of reasons why we couldn't just hang out all day long and do 14-part back-and-forths blogging about why, you know, by season three of Star Trek, they were having the Romulans do things that the Romulans would never do. <laughs> so, anyway. We'll just uh, so, one question I have about blogging. Uh, back in the days when all, this, all when more conversations took place on blogs, were there any, like, conservative complaints about, quote-unquote, censorship in the way that some conservatives are complaining that Twitter and Facebook are censoring them now? Not really. Um... Uh, and it's actually, uh, I listened to Glenn Reynolds on the Reason podcast recently. You know, Glenn Reynolds of Instant Pundit, who apparently got off Twitter about a year ago. Um, I think he at one point he was kicked off, but possible. No, but now he, I think he, I think he took back. his ball and went home. At least that, yeah. how he 
told the story. And he's probably right that it was it was good for him psychologically to do that. Um, but uh, but Glenn made this point to Gillespie about how you when in the age of blogging, um, because it was a distributed sort of system, you'd have to go to someone's ISP to get someone blocked. Or, you know, you know, it wasn't there was no boss that could impose its will because it was so distributed. Um, there were attempts to get people fired for sure. Um, uh, there were attempts to, uh, a lot of, there was a lot of anonymous bloggers that people tried to out. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of those kinds of fights, but I don't remember there was a lot of censorship stuff. I mean, I do remember that when, uh, I allegedly, I took the blame for it when I was the one who quote unquote fired Ann Coulter after nine 11 at national review, uh, which she completely misdescribed the entire event. But and the truth of it is, is that I was on my honeymoon when, when the fecal matter hit the fan and I get back and there's just chaos going on. And you're, because, you're, uh, um, Donald Glover walking back into the, the, the room with, with the pizza. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, um, but because I was the editor of National Review Online, it fell to me to be the public person to sort of fall on the sword about all this kind of stuff. But, I, you know, and she was claiming that she was being censored, which was like we stopped carrying her syndicated column. It's not exactly, you know, Fahrenheit 451. Um, and uh, I remember writing it's one of the few lines. I very rarely remember lines like this, but I remember in my public response about it, I said, little did I know that. Ann Coulter was the thin blonde line between free, freedom and tyranny or something <laughs> like that. Um, oh. So there were, there were certainly controversies all over the place, but they, they didn't have the same valiance. And it was it felt very, very fast back then, but it was actually much slower than social media because it took time to do a post, right? It took time uh -huh. to read somebody else's thing or to hear about somebody else's thing and respond to it. Um, you know, there were happier times. <laughs> uh, the olden days. There were giants back then. Um. All right. So, how much? How long have we gone on this thing? Oh, it's been like an hour. Okay. Yeah, it's been about. An all right. Hour. So, is there are, are there any must ask questions in there? Um. Let me. I'll take a brief look at this. Um. Oh well, you haven't really explained. Have you explained Ralph the cat, your cat, much on this podcast already? We can do that. Yeah, people. Someone asked, uh, "What's the deal with Ralph? Is he friends with Gracie or the dogs?" Okay, Ralph is the one who gets the least attention from your social media feed. That is correct. So we have four quadrupeds. We have we have Zoe, the dingo, or Carolina dog. Um, we have Pippa, the English Springer Spaniel, who gets the most attention. Um, sometimes members of Team Zoe are very upset about this. Um, <laughs> But Pippa, Pippa, it's not that I'm playing favorites. It's just that, first of all, Pippa just lends herself to iPhone video capturing so much better than Zoe does. And, yeah. and you know, her, her, uh, her rear waggle, wiggle waggle thing is very popular on the, on the Twitter, Twitter sphere. I think it's what put us over the top in defeating Dana Perino in the best – Twitter dog contest. Um, yeah. And Jasper is a good dog. Let's be clear. But Jasper's a good dog. Look, I, just for the record, I have never bad mouthed Jasper. The comfortably smug, the, the world's greatest troll. 
he has been trying to launch his campaign to say that my dogs are bad dogs because he was all in for Jasper. And, you know, so he basically turned, he's trying to Marco Rubio eyes Zoe and Pippa because he's acting like the political consultant he is and he's just all in for his client who is Jasper because he's, he's friends with Dana. I'm friends with Dana. I love Dana. But the other day, the, for the 1500th time that Smug said that Zoe and Pippa are bad dogs, Dana Perino liked his tweet. Mm, and this broke my heart. This broke my heart. I'll just say that. Um, I was like, et tu, Dana? <laughs> so then, uh, and so then there are the cats. Uh, Gracie, who is the longest, has the longest tenure of any of our animal, current animals. Yeah, right? how old is she? She, we were just talking about this last night. I think she's about 10. Oh, okay. So we got her when we still had Cosmo, the wonder dog, greatest dog who ever lived. And it was awesome. And I think I, if you go back to my early tweets, you can still see some images of it. Cosmo and Gracie were a team. It was like they fought crime. They were <laughs> awesome. And when I would take Kazi on a walk, never needed a leash for Cosmo ever, um, Gracie would come with. And we would patrol the neighborhood together. And Gracie would follow along, and and sometimes she'd double back. She didn't want to go too far, and all that kind of stuff. But they were like buds. And then Cosmo, of course, passed away. Um, where now he he runs along the pearly gates, screaming at intruders and mailmen. <laughs> um, and Gracie does not particularly like Zoe and Pippa. Uh, tolerates them. They're a little afraid of her. Like if she's on the stairs, they won't go up the stairs. Uh, <laughs> really. But Gracie is awesome. You've met Gracie. Met right. Her. She's a great cat. She's, I don't really like cats very much, but she's changed my mind about them a lot. She's among the friendliest cats there has ever existed, and she's fearless. She, When we have strangers over, she immediately comes out and inspects them. And I remember when we were doing a redesign of our house, and we put out our architectural plans. She always had to jump up on the blueprints and roll over on her back. And if you didn't rub her belly, she wasn't going to get off the blueprints. And... <laughs> So she's great. She's my my daughter's true love, and my daughter is constantly complaining about how Gracie doesn't get enough attention because Zoe is so jealous of Gracie and always chases Gracie away whenever Gracie tries to get close to us. And yes, Gracie is a bit Rubenesque. I'll just put it that way. Um, uh, but she's a wonderful, wonderful cat. And then there's my wife's cat, Ralph, <laughs> and. Ralph, there's some, there is some internal family tension about this because I think getting pets is a major family decision and that everyone should be on board for it. I came home one day and my wife and daughter are like, exciting news. We went to Petco and we got Ralph. And they hadn't even, we got this kitten because they hadn't decided on the name yet. And for a while there was a debate, some bizarre debate between Tasseltop <laughs> Hasselhoff and Ralph, which <laughs> oh, God. I can't remember all of the reasons for this, but maybe his slave name was Tasseltop or something like that. I can't Slave remember. name? You know, in the kennel, they give you a name. Like, you know, when you are put a cat or a dog up for adoption, they have Oh, a, right. So, like, Zoe's name was Shiver, because, and her brother was Sickle, because they were found abandoned in the snow. And... um I don't know what Pippa's was because she's purebred, so she's probably always been a Pippa. Grace, I think, was Wilma. Um, Wilma. Wilma. And Cosmo was Snowball 
So oh. we, we did not talk about around him. And um, <laughs> that was that was back when he was a character in Animal Farm. And um, so the reason I call him my wife's cat is because he wants nothing to do with me and and my daughter. He only will accept love and affection from my wife Jessica. Uh, my wife feeds him treats by hand um, out of her hand, and and she, and Ralph. Just he's just he's a maverick who plays by his own rules, and so <laughs> he's a loose cannon. But damn it, he gets the job done. Yeah. So every night he demands to go out and patrol the neighborhood, and every now and then he kills things, which I don't. I'm not a particularly huge fan of. Um, and he's a huge pain in the butt because come six o'clock or whenever the giant ball of fire in the sky goes low enough, he um, starts screaming at everybody like, "Let me out of here!" and <laughs> And then he, he makes a lot of demands, and um, and he shows me just almost zero affection. Every now and then when I am giving him wet food, and he's very picky about his wet food, he will rub up against me as if he likes me, and it's just a lie. <laughs> um, so I don't, he doesn't get a lot of attention because, first of all, he doesn't – you know, Gracie shows up. I mean, she's like – she's ready for her close-up, Mr. DeMille, and Ralph doesn't care about any of this stuff. And – um, you know, and Gracie will roll over on her back and let me rub her belly for 10 minutes without any threat of amputating a finger or my hand or anything like that. If I look at Ralph for three seconds, I might be in physical danger. And so he pays the price in celebrity. So that was a long-winded explanation, but I thought people should know. Right. The whole extent of things. There's the, it seems to me that every, like, Ten or so episodes, we you deliver a version of your your this pet summary. Well, but it needs to be. I know I'm not I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just fascinating how much people care about these animals. Well, it's funny. We also, but also other people get really pissed off, right? And this is this is one of the problems with with not going for pure niche podcastery like some of our friends do. Is that you try to go in different lanes? And so when we did that really important expose about the bear menace, right? There were some people who thought it was the best podcast they'd ever heard because we talked about G.K. Chesterton and how bears want to kill you. And there were other people who were like, what fresh hell is this? I, this is not why I subscribe to this thing. And so one of the things I have to ask for listeners is that they understand that we're going to go in different directions from time to time. And all I can promise is that we'll keep the nudity tasteful. <laughs> we can go our own way. We can call it another lonely day. I assume that's some sort of lyric. It's Fleetwood Mac. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. I I wasn't even alive then. You were, I think. I'm well, sure you know that was rumors. So you no, you yeah, you would have been alive. That was seventy seventy nine, no seventy five. Yeah, so I was six. Yeah, but um, I was negative. I was negative eighteen. I'm sure if I heard it with the tune, I would recognize it. Well, that, you'll have, you'd have to go to a, a bar in the D.C. area to catch that from me. So I won't do it here. Um, we all thank you for that. <laughs> all right. So is there anything else that we need to address? Oh, I'm sure there are other things we could do, but I think I, I, the pets is a good place to stop. I think that's probably right. Okay, so um, no huge announcements. It is true. Yes, I am f- I am no longer a writer for National Review. I'm still with the National Review Institute. What, the, what that exactly means is not entirely clear yet, but we'll figure it out. Something like double secret probation, I believe. I, it's something like that. Um, I think I've lost – I think my license to kill has been revoked. But um, yeah, I have it now. Yeah. So, but um, more announcements about what is to come with what we are still internally calling Nuco, um, which is the new 
business venture with me and Steve Hayes and some and some other people, including my friend Toby Stock, who's our third partner now in all of this. And uh, if someone has a brilliant idea for a name, delighted to hear it. We have a list of, I would guess, about 200 names that we've gone through trying to figure it out. Some of them really, really like, but you can't, but the you can't get the IP for it. And there's some that we um, think make good sense as a business thing, but don't love um, that you can't get the IP for. So we go back and forth about all this. But I'm delighted to take suggestions from well-meaning people. <laughs> um, I think you know, uh, eatcrapnevertrumper.com is not like a very useful suggestion. Uh, or cuck served at ink. Yeah, that's right. Um, um, you know, get cancer of the ass and die, which I've heard from people really? on more than a few occasions. It's such an interesting thing to say to somebody. Um, yeah, it at least has the virtue of novelty. Uh, not anymore. Oh, like now I'm like, right. can't you name a different orifice I should get cancer <laughs> of? Um, oh, come on. Ass cancer, I've already got five <laughs> cases of that. So, uh, and uh, Steve Hayes will be back from Spain in the next six weeks or so or a month or so, something like that. And he'll start joining us from time to time on, on this podcast and more announcements to come. You can, you can go to Reagan35x.com to subscribe to the G file. And, um, at some point we'll explain the deep significance of Reagan 35X and, uh, one one deep significance is that I actually flew out of Reagan 35X uh, just a couple days ago. Yeah. yeah, several weeks from ago when this podcast airs. But yes, that's vital vital information for our listeners. Just trying to keep everyone <laughs> temporally situated. I understand. And, Can't get anyone unstuck in time. Um, and then Jack, have fun in Italy. And uh, yeah. Uh, I will I have already gotten back from Italy, but... By the time this airs? Yeah. Really? Well, I hope you had fun in Italy. <laughs> uh, I will have thanked you. There you go. I think anyway, perfect uh, is the right tense for that. I, don't know. I totally understand why most of you stopped listening about 10 minutes ago. So, uh, although you'll never hear my empathy because you've stopped listening. It's, it's just like it. This whole podcast is like an audio Escher painting. Um... So anyway, thanks, everybody. Uh, please keep the reviews up. Uh, we have some really exciting – once we get all our stuff together, we'll have some very exciting uh, guests being lined up uh, when this podcast becomes part of the new – fully part of – integrated part of our new battle station. And, uh, and until then, I'll see you next time. No, you on this podcast. Oh, no, no, no.